the old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 13. I'm about halfway through my four-year sentence at RAF Valley instructing those RAF pilots destined for the fast jet world. The first couple of years had been far from without incident, and I should probably mention that I nearly lost my greatest friend to an accident, but someone was watching over him that day, and he survived. I was up in the Welsh mountains, taking a new course through combat survival training, and being beaten up every day by hawks endeavouring to take the tops off the trees home as souvenirs. Our training location was well known, and just about everyone in the low-flying area would come over at some point to say hello to the new students. Razor Gillett had just about blown us away with his slipstream when the radio crackled into life with the news that I should get down to the hospital in Bangor. Seeing my old friend, just out of theatre, with long plaster casts up to his hips and big steel pins sticking out of them at random like a drunk magician's swords stuck through a box, was a bit of a shock. He stank of anaesthetic and ditch water, his front teeth broken and his face a mass of cuts from the ejection, but he was alive. It's very much his story to tell, so I'll leave it there, but I was never more grateful to see his crooked grin as he came around. By now I'd been back to Standard Squadron for an upgrade in instructor category from B1 to A2. This involved a tedious amount of study from a large pile of approved manuals and then a few weeks flying with the standards instructors to brush up on the nuances of instructional technique. A2s tended to be given the more advanced trips and students who needed a little extra help getting through the course, so getting a handle on the finer points of explaining how to hurtle through the air at a great rate of knots effectively was important. After a suitable amount of preparation, I was off to the hallowed halls of Central Flying School at RAF Leeming to get a laying on of hands by one of the godlike immortals that reside there on the thrones of gold in the examination wing. The laying on was more like a good slapping, but after using all four approved colours on the whiteboard, flying a check ride, and being probed in unspeakable places during the debrief, I was deemed suitable to join the ranks of A-grade instructors. I might note that the pinnacle of the instructor's tree was the grade A-1, which could only be achieved after crawling through a desert for many years, climbing enormous mountains to meditate, and then prostrating yourself in front of a pilot with mythical abilities of self-levitation. Indeed, at the time it was considered so monumentally hard that there wasn't a single A1 Hawk instructor in existence. Months turned into years, and by the end of 1983 we were saying goodbye to one of our flight commanders, Glenn who'd been loaned to us from the United States Air Force. He was a fine instructor, a great boss, and a passable darts player, 
an essential quality for the many days when the weather on the island of Anglesey was producing horizontal rain. I bet nobody knows the METAR code for that. The weather could be so notoriously bad that the station news magazine was titled Force 8. Having made sure that our students were suitably engaged in studying, we would retire to the instructor's crew room, drink coffee and play darts. Glenn would often win purely by employing the stomach-churning habit known only to Americans of a certain ilk by stuffing his cheeks with red man-chewing tobacco and then spitting the vile brown effluent noisily into a Coke can. Glenn was going home after his tour of duty. He had made many good friends and was well-loved, such that when tragedy struck his young family and he was offered an immediate return, he declined, wishing, he said, to remain and mourn amongst the many friends, comrades and companions that he'd made at Valley. When he did leave, we gave him a great send-off, and at the conclusion of his last formal dinner, we unfurled a vast flag of the United States that we had hidden in the lofty ceiling over his head. In the rolls of material we had stuffed piles of confetti, so he was suitably covered in our love. In the bar afterwards, sipping on pints of beer, Glenn handed me a bar chit, normally used to write our drinks orders on. When I unfolded it, I read that I had been nominated as his successor, and he was handing over the reins. In reality, all it really meant was my own office, in which to write the copious reports needed on each and every student and instructor. It also meant trying to keep the courses ticking along so that our newly minted pilots could graduate on time. Hiccups in training progress were considered an anathema to our lords and masters. I also had the difficult task of interviewing our charges when things weren't going well, trying to nurse them through the tough times and, sadly, giving them the bad news if, despite everyone's best efforts, things just didn't work out. I had my fair share of those talks, but perhaps surprisingly, there were few tantrums or arguments. Most knew that they'd reached the extent of their ability and fully accepted it. Some didn't realise their own limitations, which was often the point, and made it difficult for them to accept. But if they couldn't reach the standard required here, how would they manage doing the same thing in a large battle formation carrying weapons whilst being attacked by other aircraft? To make it worse, there were few other opportunities for them within the service, so it often meant the end of their career in the Air Force. When the realisation hit home, there were emotions felt on both sides of the desk. Very sad. At other times, a student's visit to the flight commander's office was cause for nervousness. I dealt with reports of over-exuberance in the mess, etc., very promptly, knowing that the punishment I gave my boys would be mild in comparison with that dealt out by others. If I got there first, it was hard for grumbling senior officers to punish a student a second time for the same offence. 
So I implored them to tell me first and give me a chance to fend off complaints with the big umbrella I kept solely for that job. At other times it might be some guidance to mould the young men who would one day be joining a frontline squadron. A tall, beefy, curly-haired student who was a good pilot, indeed a very good pilot, often let his mouth run away with him. He was never one to hide his light under a bushel. Whilst his friends put up with his self-satisfaction, it rubbed many others up the wrong way. An invitation for a cosy chat in my office, where he wasn't invited to sit down, resulted in me setting him straight. The advice I passed on wasn't original. I had heard it before. It ended with these sage words. Keep your mouth shut and let your flying talk for you. Many years later, a British Airways pilot strode purposefully towards me in a bar in Narita. I immediately recognised the big stature and curly hair, and my heart sank. Was this payback time? Not at all, apparently. It seems that I had done some good, and we enjoyed quite a few beers together. As the years progressed, I took a pilot navigation instructor's course, so now I could help those who, like me a few years before, had been having difficulty mastering the art of navigation. This was followed by a Master Green instrument rating, the first time I had reached the dizzy heights needed to not just pass a rating, but excel at it. And before long, I had yet more hands laid on to become an instrument rating examiner. This certainly didn't guarantee a pass when I had to re-qualify for my personal instrument rating. Next year, my old friend John sat in the back while I performed the usual raft of instrument flying exercises in the front. An instrument departure, a Chinese weave of speed, heading and height changes which culminated in a series of recoveries from unusual positions all done on instruments then a practice diversion to fly an approach at a different airfield. I think we popped over to RAF Aldergrove in Northern Ireland, elevation 190 feet, where I missed the call to reset my altimeter from Q&H to QFE and flew an ILS down to a 200-foot decision height on the wrong setting. Such events are often a reminder that we're all human and it doesn't matter how many qualifications and accolades you receive, mistakes can and do happen. When I looked up from the gauges and peered from beneath the hood attached to my flying helmet, instead of seeing a smallish runway from 200 feet, I saw a vast one 10 feet away. Needless to say, that was a fail, and I had to do a retest, but John was kind enough to remark that he was impressed I had managed to keep the ILS needles centred right down to the runway. However, it's often the small things in life that will kill you. Christmas came and went, and I was at home throughout. The training system shuts down for such periods, and I entered the new year with just over one more year to go before I could escape back to the front line. 
I was flying less with students now and more with my fellow instructors, doing skills assessments and the like. And more often or not, when I got to fly with a student, it was for a check ride or test. These were regular events for a course and had to be passed before moving on to the next phase. For me, they were less enjoyable than regular instruction. Blogs in the front was usually on edge, knowing this was an important assessment, so most of my time was spent putting them at ease so they could perform at their best. I never really got my hands on the controls much, unless something had gone badly wrong. Then came a surprise, when Chris, my boss, was put in charge of Standard Squadron, and asked if I wanted to come upstairs to join him. This would mean flying almost exclusively with instructors, training and coaching them when they came in for their regular check rides or upgrades. It meant much less fun, as, let's be realistic, nobody likes being checked. But I knew my boss and enjoyed working under him, so was happy to take this change of role. The job was harder, as standards instructors couldn't afford to let things slip, or they'd lose what little credibility they had. A lot of our time was spent in classes, covering all the subjects that instructors had to keep up to speed on. Metrology, aerodynamics, aeromed, theory of flight, regulations, and the myriad of other books, documents, maps, instrument plates, and such. Before too long, some of the incumbents had left, and I was asked to step up as the flight commander standards. In standards, we more or less had free reign on what we could do, and it started being fun to fly with grown-up pilots who knew their stuff. We frequently took our hawks up to remote spots where, in addition to doing a couple of training sorties, we could combine a night stop or just pick up some fresh fish and Dublin Bay prawns from places like the remote RAF Macrahanish Air Base on the west coast of Scotland. Life was good, and I only had a few months to go before I would hopefully, be posted back to somewhere more exciting when the boss dropped a small bombshell on my quiet existence. I have mentioned the hallowed instructor's A1 qualification, and it appeared that the higher-ups had finally noticed the distinct lack of such godlike creatures in the hawk world. The word had come down from on high that we should all be encouraged to reach up towards this mythical and ethereal world in the chance that we might achieve greatness. As the memo mentioned, becoming an A1 instructor wasn't impossible. One merely had to be exceptional. So when Phil, a devilishly handsome ex-Red Arrows instructor from the CFS Hawk outfit, announced that he was going to try, my boss mentioned in passing that he would like me to coach him through the preparation. So began the unnerving task of working one-to-one -one with Phil to cover all the ground needed before his grilling at the hands of the Central Flying School Examination Wing. A month or two later, off he went. To return three days later, the examination was no simple matter with a gleaming new halo formating neatly over his golden locks. Good job, said the boss. 
But then it occurred to him that I'd done at least as much work as Phil towards his A1. Why don't you have a go yourself? Which is how it happened that three years and eleven months after I left the Phantom Force, I hopped into Hawk T1XX231 and set off to Central Flying School to be put through the ringer. Sadly, my memory is selective, and I can only now remember the bad bits. At some point during a four-hour oral examination, as I stood before a whiteboard giving explanation after explanation, armed only with four marker pens, I stumbled over an equation. I needed to show how the inertial and aerodynamic forces balance in a steady erect spin to the right for an aircraft with a B over A ratio greater than 1 and normally functioning controls. I think it was around the bit where the inertial moment in pitch equals force P applied to C precessed by R is pro spin at B, therefore IM equals bracket C minus A brackets PR. When I faltered and dried up, this was only one of nine equations I needed to explain. I got a look of sympathy and we moved on. Later, in an auditorium in front of the entire CFS staff, I got through the lecture I had to give and then prepared for the final day, the flying tests. Two hours and ten minutes of airborne time later, and I was back on the ground. A debrief, a shake of the hand, and I climbed back into my aircraft for the 30-minute flight back to base, the latest A1 QFI in the Royal Air Force, and entitled to the post-nominal CFS star. Apparently, my spinning fluff had been forgiven. I was also to become the laziest A1 in the existence of the RAF, as my flight home was the very last time I would ever fly as a Hawk instructor. As luck would have it, my time was up and I was done with Valley. The next time I would get airborne would be back in the Phantom full time. But that, as they say, is another story. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that at airlinepilotguy.com. If you enjoy Plane Tales as a standalone podcast, then why not help us out? Send us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks. Thank you.